I'm Benjamin Perrin. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes of my new book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. You'll hear from people who are imprisoned, survivors of violent crime, whistleblowers, insiders, and investigators. You be the judge. Join us as we expose injustice, challenge the system, and explore a new transformative justice vision. I'm Benjamin Perrin, and this is Indictment. In the correction system, there are two separate groups of people. Incarcerated people who've had their liberty taken away and corrections officers who also find themselves behind prison walls. Today, you'll hear a raw and unfiltered account from a federal corrections officer with over 20 years experience in the system, including at some of Canada's most notorious federal penitentiaries. James Bloomfield, that's his real name. He's speaking out. He's vocal and on the record, considering himself protected by his dual role as a senior member of the Federal Corrections Union. An advocate for corrections officers, he speaks out for change. A content note, today's episode includes discussion of incarceration and graphic depictions of self-harm, prison violence, use of force, and suicide. You'll also hear audio of a real prison riot and use of force against an Indigenous teenager. If you need support, please check the show notes for resources. James Bloomfield, and I'm the Prairie's Regional President for the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, and my stand-up position is a federal correctional officer with the uh, Correctional Service of Canada. Well, I started uh, obviously through, well, not obviously, I guess, but as, as a lot of individuals sort of go through that security path and start as a mall security officer and go through the different things here and there and end up in corrections. I started in corrections in 2000, uh, right at the beginning of 2000 and worked with the gang's majority of my 14 years on the floor at that institution. Um, probably about, I would say of 14 years, I worked about 12 of those years directly with the gang units with inside and uh, some of the more difficult areas for sure. Police arrest 11 people on two sides of a Winnipeg gang war. Three of them charged with first degree murder. Three young men killed in a span of just four days as Metro Vancouver's gang conflict appears to be heating up. And it appears those being recruited by these gangs are getting younger. A few weeks ago, 14-year-old Tekel Willis was shot to death after getting out of a cab in Surrey. His dad said his son was set up. Now it's 12, 13, 14, 15. In April 2013, members of the Winnipeg Police Street Crime Unit initiated Project Falling Star, a lengthy investigation strategically targeting members of the Manitoba Warriors Street Gang. The Manitoba Warriors have been known to promote illicit drug sales and commit numerous acts of violence that is linked to territorial disputes related to drug dis- distribution networks. I stayed within that until 2014, I believe it was, when I was uh, elected into this role as the regional union president for the all the federal correctional officers in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. So that takes me off of the floor and puts me into the rounds with all the officers at every institution. Um, so I have contact with every federal correctional officer at every facility within this region. 
on a very continuous basis to stay in touch with what's exactly going on in that floor and what we're dealing with on a daily basis. I have a history as well within corrections on the emergency response team for seven years and went through two prison riots with that emergency response team. What you're about to hear is actual footage of a prison riot that took place during the same time period that Bloomfield was a corrections officer. It's at a different institution and was released by a Court of Queen's bench judge and then posted online. I mean, look at me, I put 32 years in and I'm still screwed up from uh, PTS. I still dream about blood, still dream about guys hanging themselves, still dream about cutting guys down. Ray McCumber knows firsthand the trauma corrections officers endure as part of their workday. After three decades as a prison guard in Manitoba, to this day, he says the smell of blood triggers him back to gruesome scenes he was forced to deal with while on duty. And uh, in, uh, really uh, in, in the last few years, in a position where I really do feel the majority of my change or my ability to change things for the better has, has definitely, uh, there's many doors opening this level rather than as a federal correction officer. Um, on that floor level, there's very little ability to change anything at all. And you're stuck within a broken system and you're one of the two groups that are directly working within that broken system, being the, the inmate population and the correctional officers, right? From a correctional officer's point of view, it's, keeping everybody playing nice in the sandbox within this system that's there and the system itself is created by people who don't work in it. Mm. So that's the biggest challenge is realistically, I think getting recognized for the work that is being done or the work that we do as our frontline correctional officers and getting that mentality away from everybody about that old prison guard from the past, the guy with the stick that runs around and you do what I tell you, or you get the stick kind of a thing. That's been so far out of corrections. That's in the fifties stories and stuff like that, where it's a lot different. Um, it's a mental game, the whole thing as a correctional officer. And I think maintaining your mental strength, uh, through this process, that is definitely not, not perfect. Uh, and you know, you go through everything under the sun in this system. You're dealing with the the dark ends of, of society, as some would say, or you know, you're dealing with everything from a person who wants to be bad to a person who is grown up in an environment which really didn't leave them any other options in, in some people's views. So, you know, as you're going through this, the mental stability and the mental challenges is really for the officers individually. That's where most of the issues are within maintaining that mental strength through this entire problem. 
overarching inside our biggest issue is the system is being designed by people who don't work the floor. And I guess trying to fix a system or work within the system that isn't designed by people who work there is always very difficult. The challenge of the environment itself, you're putting people who are known or the, the understanding of this is the, you know, here's the criminals. We're going to put all the criminals in one place and expect them all to follow the rules. It is one of the dumbest concepts that I think really overall is where the system breaks down is we think this is going to work because this is how it was way back in the day. And the reality is it's not like that anymore. It is all about discussions. It is all about communication. And that old physical side of it is left to the wayside for the most part. So not overall, we do have a lot of physical interactions and a lot of assaults and a lot of use of force throughout our different day-to-day activities, depending on where we are and what's going on. There's no sound, but inmate Christoph Lewis hopes the video speaks volumes. He's the one in white. It was in 2012, and he was re-entering Millhaven Institute, a maximum security facility in Ontario. He says the female officer demanded to strip search him. He says he asked for a male officer to do it, which is protocol. Then several correctional officers approach. Lewis recounts what he says the officers did then. Pepper spraying me, viciously punching me, kicking and choking me. The attack on me was unprovoked and vicious. Lewis said he filed and won a grievance, but says the officers remained on the job. Lay down on the ground, put your hands behind your back and do it now. Okay, are you guys ready? This is video seen publicly here for the first time. Of teens in Saskatchewan youth jails. Their bodies bound in a device known as the rat. This was done to Matthew Michelle on at least a dozen occasions starting when he was just 14. Federal Corrections use of force protocols include using restraint equipment, physical handling and control, chemical and inflammatory agents like pepper spray, intermediate weapons, including tasers and batons, the display and use of firearms, and intervention by the emergency response team. Dr. Ivan Zinger, the Correctional Investigator of Canada, has found that four in 10 Use of force incidents in federal prisons involve at least one person who had a documented mental health condition. Dr. Zinger also found that among almost 10,000 documented use of force incidents in federal prisons, 60% were against Black, Indigenous, and people of color, who together represent 44% of federal inmates. In other words, they're disproportionately subject to use of force. Here's Dr. Zinger. In its response, I'm not convinced that the Correctional Service of Canada has either adequately acknowledged or answered compelling evidence of the unique role that race seems to play in how force is applied, how frequently it is used, and against whom. It's broken by, I think it's designed in such an archaic way. Um, It's just, it's taken in archaic concepts or an archaic way of doing business and it's just progressed from there 
And it's never really been thought of to go, let's stop and take a look at what we know these days within the new mental health structures, within all of the years standing through psychology and the advances and everything that we have and that whole understanding of how humans interact and, you know, and how, you know, the, the reaction to the different types of individual histories and how they're going to react inside. We need to be able to take a look at what we're doing here and see, is this really positive? Is this negative? And take a, a wholehearted look at what it is. And we're still patching over and continuously patching over that same pothole. That pothole is designed in like 1900 or way back in when they first had that understanding of we're locking people up under this British type of way. And here we go. The Victorian attitude to crime and punishment was harsh by standards today. If you committed a serious felony, you could be sentenced to hard labor, transportation abroad, or even capital punishment. But as the century progressed, it was increasingly likely that you would be sent to prison for most offenses. The most common crime in the 19th century was theft. It is unsurprising that pickpocketing, theft of food and clothing, was rife. Given the rapid increase in population, high rent costs imposed by unscrupulous landlords, as well as the likelihood of finding yourself on the street should you lose your job. What is perhaps surprising is the harsh sentences passed on those convicted of such crimes. People who were not inherently bad but fell victim to desperate circumstances, even those who were hungry and homeless. The Victorians set about establishing police forces across the country and embarked on a massive prison-building programme. From the moment of their conviction, Victorian criminals would be kept isolated from the rest of society. You know, from there, we've just built from there instead of rebuilding and taking a look at what we're doing. And that, in my opinion, is the broken side of it, is that fear that stops them from doing that because we have so much political interference and so much legal interference with every single interest group is in some way suing Corrections Canada for doing something wrong. And, and they're being sued on double ends. So, I mean, everybody's trying to work through this system, but it shows how broken it is when they're constantly losing things in court, left, right, and center. Um, the system is shown to be archaic. When you look at the decision and the way that that was worded surrounding the segregation versus the new structured intervention areas and that concept change and that whole understanding change, the segregation is, an, is a more of an archaic way of doing business. Was it functional? Yes. Did it work? Yep. From my point of view and from the points of views of the officers that were there, and that are doing that and that are working in those conditions, it was not done well and not explained well by the legal side of the house. And where they fall down a lot of times in that is they don't bring a correctional officer that works in that area to come in and explain what the results of it is or what we're actually doing. And they go with a concept that's being put on the table by some media person or whatever. So it, we never had the actual way that they described segregation, but it's not that it was right or wrong. For me, it was that that really is the symptom of, look, we obviously have got a conflict with law right now. We've got a conflict in all of these special interest groups who are suing for every other, everything under the sun. Take a step back and go, okay, I'm going to give it to individuals that have nothing to do with 
political interference or with legal interference and go, what would be the best system to work with? And, and that's the broken part. We've never gone there and just hatch over all day long, but that pothole still comes out every spring. So let's fix it. That's where I feel it's broken. And one of the, I guess, overarching challenge for everybody is, is that. It's been 11 years since Ashley Smith, a 19-year-old from New Brunswick with serious mental health problems, died of self-strangulation in her solitary cell in a federal prison in Ontario. The coroner's inquest into her case helped pave the way for the changes announced today. But Ashley's mother says the changes fall far short of what she hoped for. It's a sham. It's a travesty that it's done in Ashley's name. Ashley Smith spent months at a time in segregation, and her mother says that's the first thing that should have changed. We had fought for maximum five days and 60 days over um, a year, and nobody's touching that. Under the new bill, a prisoner would be entitled to four hours a day outside a cell, including two hours of what's called meaningful contact with other people. Prisoners' rights groups say that is an improvement if it actually happens. You mentioned uh, about inmates who have serious mental health issues or disability like FASD. Could you just share a little bit more from your experience about what does our current model of incarceration look like for someone like that? When you look at it from a point of view of, I guess, hey, we have all of this for these inmates and have access to all of this. It again is here's another layer on top of layer on top of layer. So we have psychology in our buildings. We've got access to psychologists. We have access to occupational therapists. We have access to a lot of things, but we don't have anywhere near enough. And when you look at the reality of the populations that we know, we know the fact that over 70% of our inmates have some sort of mental challenge, mental disability, mental health issue, something within that environment that needs more of a regular check up a process, a plan in place, a, a healing plan, no matter what that may be within the environment that we're dealing with. And a lot of times that's kind of myth. There is now a focus on mental health within the service. There is now a focus on mental health for inmates as well, to a certain degree. But the reality is, is that when you look at the suicide rates of inmates, they're very high in comparison to you know, anything for the most part, they're, they're high. And that always, always comes down to somebody who's not in a great mental space at that moment. So, you know, I believe that if you have intervention and in some cases, you're never going to stop that either. If somebody wants to die, I can do everything within my power to stop that. It's still going to happen. It's a matter of ensuring that people who don't want to, that are reaching out for help, which is probably 90% or more, those people that are reaching out for that help, that we have it there available to them. And then it's actually accessible outside of a Monday to Friday, eight to four environment with an appointment. So we should have, for example, the training for correctional officers. When you take a look at building a new system, and the training that would be required to move us into a brand new way of doing business. It really causes that. That's where the money side of also comes in because the investment in your correctional officer is something that other countries have done to a point where they import inmates. 
Federal corrections officers in Canada are only required to have a high school diploma, first aid and a CPR course. They get four weeks training by e-learning, spend two to four weeks doing assignments, followed by 12 to 13 weeks of in-person training with a heavy emphasis on the use of force. Then they're given a start date. In contrast, countries like Norway have more innovative and humane approaches to separating people from society, and that's demonstrated in their outcomes. They have much lower recidivism rates. Norwegian corrections officers are required to have a post-secondary education. They undergo a rigorous two-year training program covering law, psychology, criminology, communications techniques, conflict resolution, safety, ethics, human rights, professionalism, values, cultural understanding, mental health, and understanding the effects of people who are isolated. They also learn self-defense and extraction techniques, but that's a small part of their overall lengthy training. Norwegian corrections officers are expected to be respectful. They help to give residents hope and keep people busy doing productive things. There's an understanding in Norway that people are more likely to reoffend if sentences are lengthy, conditions are harsh, strict discipline is used, or there's frequent sanctions like cancelling phone privileges or visits. Violence and use of force in Norwegian institutions is rare. Officers don't carry batons or wear Kevlar vests. Here's how some Norwegian corrections officers and officials describe their approach. The basic question that we ask ourselves in Norway what kind of neighbor do we really want? Uh, because they could move into my neighborhood and they could move into your neighborhood. So uh, I think there's an important question to ask ourselves, really. That should have an influence on how we work inside prisons. It's not for, for the prison to judge or to punish. We have to interact and be human. Uh, I think it's as simple as that. The most important thing is how we treat people. This is the four key elements that I would like you to remember. The principle of normality, the focus that we have in Norway on humanity inside prisons, what we call dynamic security, and the emphasis that we put on reintegration into society. Their system is working so well that the recidivism rates are ridiculously low. And that's not what we have. We have recidivism rates that are hidden low and that are, you know, everybody can make a number look wonderful. The true reality is our recidivism rates are very high because our system doesn't fix anything when you're in there. So with all of those individuals and that grouping of individuals that has mental health disorders or issues or has a, a way of life that is just never part of the normal thought process for the general society, like gang life, for example, we need direct interventions with all those individuals on an extremely regular basis. And you have to invest in that inmate. You've got to put the money into it. You've got to spend that therapy dollars. You've got to bring the psychologists in, which are the actual ones that are necessary. And we can medicate people all day long, but the psychologists are the ones that actually help individuals through things, in my opinion, at least in my experience within the environments. And with my experience through correctional officers and, and all of the mental issues that come with that job, it really comes down to psychologists or the route that has been the most effective. We don't have that in a way that is what the service puts out that there is. Obviously, we have access. We have more access to the general public. Yeah, sure. But within corrections, there's a Monday to Friday, 8 to 4, and a lineup. I've got two psychologists for 1,000 inmates. 
you know, it's just that number doesn't coincide with what the necessity is in that area. So it realistically at this point is a drop in the bucket is what they've done so far in that area. For inmates, that's where the change I believe is necessarily, they got to invest in that side of the house and really understand and, and move forward in that way. And in the officers and the training side of it, the rates of PTSD for a federal correctional officer are recorded as higher than any other occupation in history anywhere, including all wars, which is unbelievably ridiculous when you think of it. Now, what they don't really go with is we have a 26, depending on where you're going, it's 26 to 34% PTSD rate, which is wild, wild. That's our actual numbers for male medium security institutions. When you look at the reality of the secondary side of that, a PTSD diagnosis through your doctor comes with hitting certain number of criteria. What normally happens is if the officer doesn't hit enough on the PTSD side of it, they hit on the major depressive side of it. And that is truly a result of the environment as we've come to learn is there's no production, there's no positivity. You get zero for your work and you put your ass into it every day and you put your ass on the line and you walk out of there and you're like, I got nothing out of that today, nothing. And you know, it really starts pattern. So getting in there and training the officers right off the bat a lot more into what you're really truly going to be dealing with giving us the tools to be the direct crisis counselor is essentially what is needed in that area. We are the intervention point. We're the first contact for every single thing from where the guy goes down there to say, hey, come on over here. Hey, I got to talk to you, man. Your daughter just got killed. Where are the people who have to do that? Sometimes it's a parole officer, but Monday to Friday, eight to four is a parole officer if they're not off. It's just me who walked in the door with no training in that going, hey, dude, I hate you. I don't like you. I think you're an idiot because I heard what you did and I don't have that training. This is what comes out of my mouth, whether I'm saying those words or not, when I'm expressing to him that here's a problem in your life, it's no big deal to me. I feel you deserve it. So if I'm not trained properly, I'm going to come across that way. And that's where that necessity in training people to be that crisis counselor, that intervention person is so lacking and so needed. Depending on the government involved, it was depends on how it is recorded. So numbers of recidivism, for example, the example to show is really a person who's in for, he has come into the institution because he has stolen cars. He's a car thief. He ripped off 30 cars and finally he got caught and now he's in jail for whatever period of time. The guy gets out on parole. So essentially what happens is not car thief goes back out onto the street. Now he's come inside, supposed to be whatever. He goes outside within a month. The guy sits there and robs somebody for their car this time instead of stealing it by hot wiring it. This time he holds a knife to them. He's not considered a recidivist when he comes back in the institution for two reasons. The first one is he didn't do the same crap. He's got to do it exactly the same and in the same manner for him to be considered a recidivist. The other part is if he's still on parole, he's not considered a recidivist. If he does another crime and comes back in, he just hasn't finished his sentence yet. So that's where the numbers can be played and they have openly played them. So I know one point we were reporting something like 2.6% recidivism, which was, we literally were just outright laughing at that numbers and numbers can be played with. So we don't trust those as officers 
And when we look at that, that's not a base to go on whether the system is working or not. From my perspective, this country is so politically run in the correction system that it runs with the government of the day. And what really happens is this country is built on a four-year base and they just want four years, that four years, that four years. Is it achievable to change and review an entire correctional system in four years? Nope. Done. We're going to keep fixing and patching it. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we've never changed the base of corrections. I don't know. It's still the basic same thing. You wake up, you come out, you get your breakfast. Then you go to work. Then you come back and you lock up and then for a period of time, and then you come back like at lunch hour and they repeat the process. It's just feed up, lock up, go to work, lock up, come out for feed up, break time, go to bed, depending on what's going on. Of course, there's so many different levels and right now we're running so many populations within inside our walls. It is, it's very complicated, but that's how they're sort of fixing it, right? Is that. They think that's the solution is where we are right now, I guess. I don't know overall, they as in, I don't know who they are either, but there's nobody really knows what to do. Um, but right now that's, that's part of where they're at is we'll split them up. We'll try that. We have to change the whole approach. That's just a, we can keep doing what we're doing, but we're not doing anything different in the basics. Like right when you bake it right down, same damn thing we've been doing for a hundred years. It's just less archaic in the way we're doing it right now. It doesn't make it any different and our results aren't changing. Do you guys know what the definition of insanity is? Do you know what it is? It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I know, but it's gonna be different this time. It could be anyway. Yeah, this time we're gonna get results, man. That's right. Um, there are different approaches. There is, there is in, in other countries, nothing in North America the U.S. approach is, is ridiculous, honestly. It's warehousing. We all know it, and there's nothing more to it. We know that their system is way worse than what we got going on. We are touted as one of the better systems in the world for corrections. But at the same time, when you're comparing to places that are third world countries, it's not that hard to be one of the best in the world. When you start going over to places that are a little more advanced in, in their processes and where they've gone in investments, and you look at, take an example of the Netherlands, and that's where they import inmates in portions because they don't have any of their own anymore. And they went from a system that was just as broken as everybody else's and took an approach of, we're going to take the officers and train them to be fully, be full, everything. And they take an approach that is very different. And whether that's the right approach or how much they train, and that is one thing to be debated as to what should be trained, what shouldn't be, and what the levels of that would be. And I'm not saying theirs is right or wrong. I'm just saying, uh, look at that model and they've gone from an approach that is very old school, similar base approach like the rest of the world, lock them up and move them when you have to, to such a process where it is all about trust and being open all day, not being locked up all day, being valued in some way to give that inmate a value in there, even if they are the worst person in the world there's a way to start to approach a change or a path forward. Most people are coming out of jail. Almost every one of them will be out of jail within our system, some way, shape or form. So the reality is, is that they should be more prepared to go back on the street and be uh, trained or, or given the tools 
we've got no investment in there either. I can throw them back into the same environment. The guy could be the great, great guy changes over the course of four or five years inside to the point where he has got, you know, dropped his gang ties. He's been productive. He's, you know, just a guy who's gone from being a complete way you would consider a street dirtbag coming in who's just going to scream and yell and fight for everything to a person who's a real productive part of the inside of the operations and in a good way, helping in the right places. So you can take a person like that and they can be in great shape and go out with, here's a job prospect. Here's your, you know, a good working part-time out of the minimums or out of that, you've got a halfway house they've gone through, they've got their job. And then here you're cut off now, done, go back home. And home is in the middle of, you know, down on murder's half acre in Winnipeg. And what do you got left? You go in there, your dad's a gang member, your brother's a gang member, your cousins are all gang members. And you're going back in two weeks later, he's back inside because he robbed something, right? You have to look at it from a much bigger and different approach than just lock him up. Here's the fix, send him out to be done. That's where it goes back to the basics. It's the basics have to be changed. Just sort of what I would love to see is the overall corrections at the end of the day is that sort of 10 person pod controlled environments. You can lock it up if you need to, but the reality is it's open. There is work, there is education. Nobody's sitting there doing nothing. You're actually involved in something and not physical work necessarily. But I mean, if you're not going to sit there and not do anything as far as learning or educating yourself or helping yourself become a better individual, however that is, then you want to be that drain, then put those drains together and great. You guys are the ones that shovel. I don't care. You guys are the ones that go and cut the grass, but utilize what you have and, and better your environment. So we have an ability to separate individuals, figure out a way to separate them into groups that we can work with an environment that is not Stony Mountain institution. Like I mean, it's the oldest institution in the country. It's Shawshank. I work there. It's the green mile. That's my environment. I mean, I watch those movies, those bars, same damn thing. It's, it's a hundred year old, 150 year old building. That's where those original bars are from. So when you start looking through all these processes, how the hell do you take a building like that? That is housing individuals in groups of you got 50 on one side, you got 50 on another, and they all come out and work together or they all are part of it. So you have a hundred and up to 120 inmates that three correctional officers are dealing with. And that's all that we're allotted. So I have this whole unit, 120 inmates, most are gang members or active gang members trying to do whatever. We've got a drug trade that is through the fricking roof. It is unbelievable the amount of drugs that you can get inside of the prison. Since 2015, drone sightings have increased at penitentiaries. The unmanned aerial vehicles drop cell phones, drugs, and other illicit substances. No matter what the good guys do, the bad guys will figure out some way to get past it, and the cat and mouse game will continue. Over the course of my career, the ability to talk to an inmate became zero. I got three guys on tonight, I've got 120 inmates. It is crazy in here, the music's blaring. It's just, it's, it's a prison environment. So when you take that and cut it down to a small environment where we're working together as a group, you're keeping it very controlled and therapeutic. The results are going to be a hundred percent different than lock them up. And, you know, here's an hour of therapy a day. 
a different type of living area where there are smaller groups of individuals. They're more of a, almost like a, a group, a group therapy, a continuous group therapy approach almost. You could, you could sort of compare it to where this pod is living together and they are responsible to each other and they are, you know, we're having group meetings, we're having this, we're having this. And it, it really puts everybody in a different environment. It's a, it's a therapeutic environment instead of a lock them up sharpen your shank at night and hide it well during the day and then come out and pretend like everything's wonderful with your psychologist then go back and play gang member on your range again for the next two days because well you're not seeing your psychologist and you've got 75 other people you're working with here that are 50 of them are gang members and that's where you live so it's a whole investment in everything from the basics of understanding to make it more of that try to build the environment i guess whatever that would look like um, or that therapeutic type of thing from the start in a smaller group environment but putting 100 guys together or putting 50 or 60 guys together and not doing anything structured with that group of individuals as a group is just an environment for praying um, the worst of the worst is going to pick on the most vulnerable and they are going to do everything they can do to pick on and use that person and the environment we got to change is the ability for them to do that they hurt each other more inside than you could ever imagine as as far as an environment when we're looking at you know what hurts an inmate the most it definitely becomes their co-inmates they get trained to be worse and worse and worse by the environment created and what we're living in right now inside that institution It is the most difficult environment most people could never imagine. It is unbelievably gruesome. It is very hurtful to your mind and to your soul. And a lot of individuals come out of there extremely hard. And most of us die within five years of retirement. When you come out of there and then that's the environment you're put into, there's a lot of people who are going to have a lot of individual claims. We've got 7,500 officers across the country that are hired by Corrections Canada. We as a union have thought to have these hiring practices more scrutinized in cases because we were having issues, having claims and a lot of claims and things that were just ridiculous. It should have never been hired. People sliding through the cracks. So we've really gone through that system of hiring to ensure that we're not hiring the wrong individuals as a service to whole. And the union is on that same page. And, you know, as a, as an officer on that floor, the worst thing we can do is create a problem for our fellow officers and create an environment where I can be an ass all day long. And I can create such a shitty environment for me to walk out of smile and go home and grab a beer and cheers to a buddy and think it's a big joke. And the next guy that walks in there that takes over from me at four in the afternoon gets stabbed that night because I was an asshole that day. It's all about protecting your own ass at the end of the day, making sure you're doing your job perfectly because you're being watched on camera as an officer from the time you walk in the building, the time you go home. So if you get a complaint against you, they pull up your shift. And yes, there are claims that are found in some cases and in a lot of cases are not. It's just that there's nothing really publicized about it at the end of the day. So, you know, go through an internal process. And even at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to come out of an internal process is it was handled internally mm -hmm. and you have no right to know the details. Well, that person could have been fired. They could have been suspended for, you know, whatever they could have been given a written warning and said, Hey, you know what? That obviously wasn't what happened. 
but the way you move your arm looks shitty. So next time you close the hatch, don't close it so hard. It's such a close environment where not very many people know the true reality. I'm very publicly, I'm very public about all my um, nine years. No one's ever opposed me in the regional president's position. I've been run three times. Each time it's being unimposed and a cheer at the end. And I speak on behalf of the officers and I, I'm not looking at it for a political anything. I'm doing my career and I'm doing what I feel is right. And I speak out for a service that doesn't and that refuses to. And the correctional officers are so done with that. key part of a new transformative justice vision is rehabilitation and healing. This means abolishing traditional prisons and jails. We need to significantly expand and improve community-based alternatives to incarceration. We should only separate people from society as a last resort and when there's a significant risk of harm to the victim or public that can't be managed in the community or where the harm done was so egregious that it shocks the conscience of society. Separation from society, when it is done, should only be in secure rehabilitation and healing centers, similar to the approach we heard taken at Halden Prison in Norway. Safer institutions for everyone, and a safer society when people are released. For the people who are incarcerated, and those whose jobs it is to work in these institutions, and for all of us, we need to take a different path. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they go live. And remember to rate and review us. To find out more, get a copy of my latest book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial, by Benjamin Perrin, published by the University of Toronto Press. All author royalties are directly donated to nonprofit organizations that support people who've been incarcerated and survivors of violent crime. Indictment was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. To protect their privacy, the names of people with lived experience have been changed. This podcast is obviously not intended to provide legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. If you're in need of help with any of these things, please consult a professional for assistance. The topics we cover can be upsetting and triggering. If you need support, please check out the show notes for resources. Funding and support for indictment was provided by the Law Foundation of British Columbia and the University of British Columbia. Indictment is produced by me, Benjamin Perrin and Dora Duber. Keep listening and stay safe. See you next time.